our hearts continue to be filled with excitement, with enthusiasm, with eagerness, as the God of heaven has so bountifully allowed us to assemble on this third Sunday in the year of 2014. As I look over the audience, and as Brother Gary so aptly mentioned a moment ago, we're blessed with a good number from our membership and a host of visitors who've come our way. We do, more than anything, hope that our worship is truly in truth and in spirit, John 4, 24, and that it allows each of us to be drawn closer to the kind of person that God would have each of us to be. As you perhaps know, or at least the membership here at Pippin is well aware, we set before ourselves the task, as this year began, to read through the Word of God. And as we did that, the promise was that the lessons on each Lord's Day would in fact be patterned after the texts that we read together the previous week. At this point, you and I have now read some 61 chapters in the book of God. As such, that's a bit over 5% of the totality of it, and you and I have already been so magnificently blessed by having read together those 61 chapters. You'll notice, though, that among the matters that we read together this past week focused in the book of Matthew in the New Testament was a set of beautiful descriptions of the Lord and His interaction with people. He healed so very many. He touched their lives in inescapably magnificent ways. But not only that, He taught some amazing truths, among other things, about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, today, I thought we'd give some consideration to that set of verses that Jeremy read a moment ago from Matthew chapter 12. As we cast the spotlight on that pair of verses this morning, we'll do so with an intent to not only appreciate the particular context in which it's found, but to, in fact, gain a heightened appreciation about what it was that the Lord referenced on that occasion. What was it that He described as being unforgivable? Let's begin our remarks by appreciating these comments. Isn't it true that over the centuries there have been so many comments and so many controversies surrounding the Holy Spirit? The very mention of some of them still wreak havoc in the mind of some. What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to say the Holy Spirit indwells individuals? What about those gifts of the Holy Spirit? What about the circumstances surrounding the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? That's only four. Others might well be mentioned, but the thought is easily enough understood, isn't it? And it is for that reason I would ask you to again consider this passage spoken by our Savior. In Matthew chapter 12, that same verse, set of verses, I would invite you to read it with me again as I read it in our hearing. Wherefore I say unto you, that's verse 31, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. A rather tantalizing passage, isn't it? The Lord made observation that there were sins, there were particular blasphemies that would be forgiven as long as they were against Him, but then He attached to that any blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It won't be forgiven in this world or in the world to come. It's an eternally damnable matter. 
this particular slide, I would invite you to begin our consideration by at least thinking about the Holy Spirit and the reasoning behind these matters that the Lord set before us today. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it is mentioned explicitly some three times in the sacred text. The one that you and I just read, it's mentioned again in Mark and also mentioned again in the Gospel according to Luke. We do even notice immediately that this Holy Spirit is not merely an emotion. It is not merely an influence. It really is a divine person. The Holy Spirit is a divine being. Therefore, He is identified with pronouns like He. Just like you would speak about a male individual, Jesus referred to Him that way. In John chapter 16, verse 13, the Son of God Himself said, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He shall guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself. But whatsoever things He heareth... Do you notice the point? Time and again, our Savior made reference to the Holy Spirit with a masculine pronoun, calling Him a He... Thus, as we give appreciation to this divine being, that immediately helps us understand we aren't merely talking about a train of thought. The Holy Spirit is not merely some influence, an emotion, a force, if you will. This Holy Spirit is significant. We find Him on the first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, when the God of heaven on that occasion inspired Moses to write, let us make man in our image. We find there human beings haven't been created yet, but yet there was a trinity in reference. There was a plurality, and the Holy Spirit was, was one of them. Earlier in that same chapter, beginning in Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The Spirit of God in existence, eternal, just as the other two members of the Godhead are as well. You'll notice those comments lead us to then recast our thoughts to this passage. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is not forgivable. I wonder what the Lord meant by that in the sense of what then would constitute such a sin. What would constitute an activity like that? What would that kind of blasphemy be? It may well be that you have heard conversations and maybe you yourself have heard particular lessons or other particulars in magazines or television presentations. What is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? A few of the assertions I've tried to include. Some over the years have asserted to commit murder is the unforgivable sin. If you overtly and with premeditation take the life of another, some have argued... That apparently is the unforgivable sin. That's this blasphemy of which the Lord spoke. Others, on the other hand, have asserted, well, perhaps it's suicide. If an individual takes his or her own life, some have said that is the unforgivable sin. It is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. For others, they've asserted that it's the sin of adultery. This matter in which you not only directly offend yourself and your mate, but yet you include a third party. Over the years, some have included that one. Maybe finally, some have thought that apostasy, an individual who once was faithful to the Lord, 
who was a member of the kingdom, who knew all the rights and privileges attached to servanthood in the body of Christ, but then chose to go astray, chose to forsake the Lord and wander in the realms of sinfulness. That, some have asserted, is this unpardonable sin. May I submit to you, though, that there are several passages that we should carefully consider before we accept any of them directly. Think about murder, for example. In Acts 2, verses 36 and 37, those who murdered Christ, they were forgiven. So apparently murder can be forgiven. You'll also notice beyond that, in 1 Timothy 1.15, what was it that Paul stated about himself? He called himself the chiefest of sinners, and he himself held the clothes, and thus was guilty of those who put Stephen to death. But he thanked God he'd been forgiven, and he thanked God that he was a member of the kingdom and was entrusted to be a proclaimer of the gospel. Thus I'd say, murder can be forgiven. Not only that, as you think about suicide, the taking of one's own life, you'll notice that word doesn't occur in this passage. Maybe we ought to give that one a second thought too before we so quickly accept that that must be that to which the Lord referred. In light of the last two, think about adultery. You and I remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, on that occasion Paul said the Corinthians had been guilty of it, but didn't he use a past tense verb? They had been, but no longer were. They'd been forgiven of adultery. And when it comes to apostasy... Perhaps no passage sets the tone for that one better than the closing two verses of the book of James. In James 5, verses 19 and 20, wasn't it true that James had these words to say, Brethren, if any of you be overtaken in a fault, or if any of you err from the truth, let him that know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins." Did you notice the language the Holy Spirit chose to use? Converteth the sinner from the error of his way. So it's possible, to, though one falls into apostasy, to come back to the truth. That one apparently is not the unforgivable sin either. Maybe in light of all of that, it's time to revisit this passage and to do so in the following manner. First, what is this feature? What is the context and what is it that the Master emphasized in light of this passage? First of all, earlier in Matthew 12, in fact, just prior to the events that you and I have just read, we find, noticing verse 22, the text informs us that, "...then was brought unto him," that is, unto Jesus, "...one possessed with a devil." It goes on to say the result or the consequences were this man was blind and he was dumb. He wasn't able to see. He wasn't able to speak. It says, and he, that's Jesus, healed him. That's the one that was possessed with the devil. Insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. So here was a notable miracle that the master performed. Here was a man brought before Jesus. He was unable to see, unable to speak. And the reason was he was possessed with the devil. Possessed with a demon. Jesus immediately and with great power cast out that demon. And you'll notice that the consequence was this one who formerly had been blind was now able to see. And this one who formerly was mute was now able to speak. Immediately in the verses that follow, it says in verse 23, 
that all the people were amazed. I believe all of us could agree that if that were done in our midst, we had known this gentleman and we had known the kind of circumstances that were his, we would immediately be impressed with what had just happened. It says, is not this the son of David? They were perplexed. This man, as far as we know, is just a common son of David. He came out of the lineage of David and yet he's performed this. Verse number 24 introduces us one more time to a statement made by the Pharisees. It says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. These Pharisees who were becoming more agitated as the days passed because this Jesus was garnering the attention that they wanted. This Jesus was taking to Himself and exhibiting power that they recognized they were not able with majesty to themselves do. On this occasion, verse 24, they thus asserted, Well, you realize this Jesus, He's only doing this by invoking the power of the devil. This word Beelzebub that they employed, again, verse 24, This fellow doth not cast out devils but by Beelzebub. That word Beelzebub harkens us back to a far more ancient day because Beelzebub was basically a Philistine deity, that is, of the Philistine nation, and it literally means the Lord of the Flies, F-L-I-E-S. And that came over the course of years to be attached to the very working of the devil in the, in the sense of the demons and the various attributes of darkness that go with them. And so we notice these Pharisees had the nerve, the gall, the audacity to thus assert that Jesus in this mighty and impressive miracle, well, He only did it by the power of the devil. You'll notice in the verses that follow, Jesus responded to that. Verse 25 says, And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. The Lord's logic was inescapably powerful, wasn't it? You and I know that when beings, when entities work in unison, they support one another. They don't work against each other. Well, here Jesus said, let's think about this a moment. If I am casting out devils by the power of the devil, then isn't that a strange matter for the devil's the one that possessed this man to start with, and now if I'm casting him out by the same power, that means I'm fighting against the same power that led to this indwelling spirit to begin with. Every kingdom, every city divided against itself is brought to desolation. We understand from a simplistic feature the greatness of that kind of attribute. Jesus absolutely crushed their position, didn't He? The logic again was so grand. You'll notice verse 27, He summarized by saying, And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. Apparently, there were but two possibilities. Either the power to cast out the devil came from some consideration of the devil, or it had to be from God, and Jesus had crushed the first possibility. 
And now he says, if indeed I cast out devils with the power of God, then you should appreciate this kingdom of God is now among you. It is to be strongly considered. That brings us to verse 30, and then of course following to verses 31 and 2. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. I would invite you to then to appreciate. Jesus here made a proclamation, powerful, strong, straightforward, and to the point. The ability to cast out this devil, if it wasn't by the devil, that means it had to be of God, and doesn't that illustrate that God is more powerful than the devil? Because if Christ could cast out the demon, if He could cast out that demon that was on this occasion causing this man to be both blind and mute, then surely the obvious conclusion is one stronger than the devil is in your midst. And the Lord was referring to Himself. Mark and Luke both make references to a strong man. Isn't it true that a stronger than the strong man had come? Jesus was that very one who from the portals of heaven had left in all the purity and majesty there and dwelled now among men for some time. And in the concourse of that time, He had illustrated His power over those devils. Is it any wonder then as we come to this blasphemy of the next verse? Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven. That word blasphemy, it means in this New Testament passage, the Greek word, to speak injuriously or to speak against. And we then interestingly appreciate what the Lord affirmed. You'll notice that bottom slide. All in general, all sin, all blasphemy, the Lord said would be possible to be forgiven. You'll notice that the language, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. Now the exception that's to come clarifies what the Lord said. But as you think with me about that, doesn't it lead us to again this text, this statement that has occupied the thoughts of so many for so long. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, He said, is not forgiven in this life, nor in the life to come. It maintains an eternal separation. It is, as some have called it, the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin. You and I still are in position to wonder then from context and from the considerations of the passage, what is this blasphemy to which Jesus Himself referred? Well, thankfully, Mark has before us a comment that identifies and helps us tremendously. In fact, if you'd like to flip over to Mark's version and notice the way Mark presents it, he has a statement that's very meaningful and a statement that assists us tremendously. I'm reading in Mark 3, beginning in verse 28. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. And then verse 30, Because they said, He hath an unclean spirit. That word because that opens verse 30 helps us appreciate that the fuller description, 
seemingly attaches that statement to the very one Jesus had made. The Lord made this reference to this unforgivable sin, this unpardonable matter, because they said He hath an unclean spirit. When they gave the power of God and asserted that it was due to the devil, that was of such a character to blaspheme, to revile, to injure in a grand way the very nature of God and His work in the human family. And in so doing, that led the Lord to make the statement that He just made. As you'll see on that slide with me, these Pharisees had taken the very power of God, housed in the nature of the Son, and they had attributed it to the devil. That kind of matter, again, is not an easy thing to consider in lightness, but rather it is an overwhelming and eternal matter. In fact, this statement seems to follow. That kind of thing is unforgivable. If one is not willing to admit the power of God and its manifestation in healing the sick and those that are blind and those that are mute, and to do so with immediacy, and to do so with the very words and majesty that Jesus had said, that, lead, that led the Lord to say what He did. As you and I bring that situation to today, you notice that we don't live in an age where there's indwelling of demons in that same way. Both Old and New Testament had foretold for us that that kind of day has passed. Wasn't it true as we read in Hosea? And wasn't it also true as we read in Zechariah? that the circumstances surrounding that matter of demon possession have now slipped for us into the recesses of history. We do understand that in our present day, there still are those that choose to do evil. There are those that choose to do that which is ungodly, and they choose to work against the very power of heaven. They choose to ignore the church and the Christ. They choose to live their life in complete defiance to God. But that's not exactly the same as having a spirit indwelling one in that ancient era that caused one to be mute or blind or lame or that even caused that gathering man in Mark chapter 5 to be one who, remember, had superhuman strength and was able to break chains and he ran around naked. You'll notice there were those due to demon possession that lived like that. You'll notice that following slide. That following statement does have or indicate that there's a strong meaning in all of this for you and me today. Even if I cannot overtly attribute miracles to Satan when they rightly belong to God because there are no miracles like that today, is it still true that you and I can be guilty of some sin that will not be forgiven? Is it still the case that you and I can commit something do something that will not be forgiven, either in this life or in the life to come? The answer is yes, isn't it? And we know that because other Bible writers make reference to that activity. I'd invite you to think with me, first of all, about the attribute of sin. Isn't it true that you and I are told explicitly in 1 John 3, 4 that sin is a transgression of God's law, whether it be by virtue of our actions, our thoughts, our words, any of them can well constitute a sin if, of course, it is against the very proclamation of heaven. These verses I've asked you to consider. Mark 16, 16, for example. Our Lord commissioned His apostles to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He didn't say every creature that hadn't committed the unpardonable sin. He said every creature. And he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. In Matthew's version, in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, All power given unto me in heaven and in earth, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the way even unto the end of the world. Those are just a sampling of other passages that could so quickly be mentioned. I would suggest that we at least remember what John the Baptist said of Christ. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, John 1.29. If it is then the case that verses like these indicate that any sin, all sins, can be forgiven... I wonder if that doesn't lead us then directly to that bottom set of conclusions. It is true as you think about this sin then that won't be forgiven. Doesn't it follow that apparently it's that sin that a person won't confess? And it's that sin that a person won't repent of. And it's a sin the person won't come to the Master and beseech His forgiveness for. Indeed, that won't be forgiven. You and I can hear untold sermons in our life. We can even read the Bible, but if we don't allow it to touch our life, if we don't allow ourselves to be overwhelmed with the mercy and grace that it presents, we'll go to our grave a doomed man or a doomed woman, having departed this life not in favor with the God of heaven. That won't be forgiven. It will never, in fact, be brushed aside, swept under the rug, overlooked or neglected. As you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, those particular considerations lead us maybe to the most famous exposition of that particular thought in the New Testament. You and I know that individuals can, in fact, drop aside from their faithfulness. They can become overwhelmed in sin. They can lose their faithfulness not because the Lord cast them out, but because they made decisions that were foolish and decisions that were sinful and decisions that were filled with iniquity. They chose to leave the faithfulness of the kingdom as they made that choice. They can be recovered as long as there's life within them. We noted that verse earlier in James 5, verses 19 and 20. And didn't, in fact, Peter assert the same? But as you and I exhibit that kind of consideration... Look at its clear teaching in the book of Hebrews relative to that point. In Hebrews chapter 6, there were individuals that were of Hebrew background. They had obeyed the gospel. They had been brought into the fold of God. They knew and had tasted the good word of God as that very verse would describe it. It's significant that word taste is utilized. For you and I, some of the strongest perceptions come from our taste. It's sensitive it can be so very pleasurable, but it can also be so very distasteful. They tasted the good Word of God. The Bible, the Word of the teaching thereof, had been sufficiently exciting and meaningful and enthusiastic for them. They came to know what it meant. But that chapter also informs us they had slipped into apostasy. They'd forgotten their first love. They had walked away from the very faithfulness that once had described them. As you give thought to it, there was a strong temptation, of course, from the devil for any Christian to do that. This would be a fine time to remind each of us 
how that you and I as faithful Christians are directly in the crosshairs of the devil. He already has the world. Untold millions are following him already, but it's you and I that he wants. It's you and I that he wants to add to his number. Because as faithful Christians, we are not in his army, we are not in his kingdom, and we are not following that which he finds to be his glory. And therefore, he will bring temptations before you and before me. He will bring circumstances, and he will in fact bring matters that will lead us to have to make decisions. And will we follow the master, or will we follow the devil? That choice of two brings us to Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 26, it says, Our God is a consuming fire. That verse coupled with chapter 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We see then in the passage like that when the fear that attaches to that meaning. And notice what these individuals then were in the process of doing. Hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. Here were individuals in the New Testament era, the very era in which you and I live, and they had done despite under the Spirit of grace. That Spirit of grace is the Holy Spirit. That verb hath done despite, it means to insult, to outrage. It means to treat despitefully. An individual, though a Christian who falls into sin, who falls into apostasy, has done despite under the grace of God. That person has insulted the very grace that was exhibited toward him or her. That person has fallen into a position of treating disrespectfully and outrageously the magnitude of love and mercy sent forth his way. No wonder then it's such a sorrowful matter to consider one who's fallen into the world. Didn't Peter put it like this? The latter end with him is worse than the beginning. Think about that. The latter end is worse than the beginning, 2 Peter 1, or rather 2 Peter 2, verses 18 to 22. That person was lost before he ever obeyed the gospel, but now after having obeyed it and fall back into the world, he's in a worse off position now than he was if he'd never obeyed. Doesn't that highlight for us the seriousness of showing outrage to the Holy Spirit? And the reason we say that is because this Holy Spirit is the one that gives us the only guidebook we have. The only leadership, the only direction that you and I enjoy. It is with that in mind, I'd invite you to close our study by looking at the closing chapter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. Beginning in verse 14, the inspired writer said, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. If any man see his brother seeing a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. As you and I analyze our lives, there is a sin unto death. 
It's any sin that you won't repent of. It's any sin that you won't confess. Any sin that you won't fall prostrate before the Master and beg Him to forgive you. If you go to your grave with that sin, you'll be doomed because no sin will enter heaven, Revelation 21, 27. The sin not unto death. Of course, the appreciation of while you have the opportunity and while you have the mindset to come unto the Master and to beseech His forgiveness. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the same thing as this sin unto death mentioned in this passage. As you think about your life and as I analyze my own, all of us are in position to reach conclusions that might be neglected or that might be stated like this. Even though that literal blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, claiming miracles are due to the devil and not due to God, even though we can't literally do that anymore because there are no miracles, it's still true. That you and I know that if we have sinned in our life and won't confess it, won't obey the gospel, won't repent of it, won't agree to allow ourselves to be baptized, and if baptized, won't come back to our loving favor with God, we're committing a sin that won't be forgiven. The only forgiveness comes from the blood of Jesus. And if we're unwilling to come to that, if we're unwilling to attach to it, if we're unwilling to be covered by it, there is no forgiveness. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. As Jesus asserted it earlier in Matthew 12, verse 30, didn't He say, He that is not with me scattereth abroad. There is no middle ground, my friend. Either you are for the Master, you are serving in His kingdom, or you're not. And if you're not, the only reason why you are not is because of sin. And if you won't allow Him to forgive that sin, and you take it to your grave with you, that sin will lead to you eternally being lost, forever separated from Him. There is never any statement in the Bible that after death, sins will be forgiven. They must be forgiven now. Are you guilty of the sin unto death? Please don't let your heart be hardened. Don't let your heart become so overwhelmed, so motivated by the things of the, of the world that the Word of God won't touch you. Remember, Jesus said there is a sin not unto death. All of us need to be appreciative of the fact that our sins can be forgiven if we'll just let them be. The plan of salvation demands that you believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. That you repent of the sins in your life, Acts 2, 38. That you confess His name as the Son of God and that you be baptized for the remission of sins. If you do that, you know then the sweetness of rising to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. But that also means that even after becoming a Christian, if you become overwhelmed in sin and you fall into apostasy, don't become so hardened that you won't come back to the truth. For if you do, that sin unto death will lead to your eternal ruin. Today, don't be hardened so, but come forward if you need to do that. Let us pray with you and for you. And if we could be of assistance, why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?